Hello and welcome to the Oleaster Podcast, the audible version of articles on oleaster.org. I am Devin Phillips, the author and your narrator. Without further ado, let's dive in. Roots of Rage Part 2 Oslo International Law, Antisemitism, and a War of Words. This episode is the second installment of a three part series on the varied factors of the global controversy and conflict with Israel, especially in light of the war with Gaza in May 2021. Though two years old, the historical background is just as relevant in navigating the current controversy of the Israel-Hamas war. You can read or listen to the first installment, as well as the third installment, on oliaser.substack.com. So without further ado, this is part two of Roots of Rage, Oslo, International Law, Antisemitism, and a War of Words. For 11 days in the middle of May 2021, there was an outbreak of violence in Israel and Gaza that included widespread riots, rocket attacks on Israel from groups in Gaza like Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Israeli airstrikes targeting the Gaza Strip. Throughout the conflict, which was sparked most immediately by the controversial court cases of the disputed properties in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, and tension surrounding the Al-Aqsa complex during the height of Ramadan, Israel and Gaza made international headlines. They became a central talking point from politicians to protesters around the world. Jewish people living in the diaspora began to experience an astronomical rise in anti-Semitic attacks, and the state of Israel found itself under a different barrage than rockets coming out of Gaza, a barrage of accusations and insinuations as to the legality and the morality of its actions in response to Hamas's attack. Was Israel committing war crimes? Did Israel's alleged breaking of international law justify Hamas's breaking international law? Is it fair to hold the broader Jewish community responsible for Israel's actions? Some of these questions are difficult, and others are not so difficult. Still, so often, the nuance of the situation was lost amid an alphabet soup of buzzwords so designed to emotionally corral readers into a clear sense of the good and the bad that facts that might have shed light on that situation and provide answers were hopelessly obscured. With so many longstanding and intractable conflicts, we can't begin to understand the roots without some context from history. So let's travel back, back to a very unique moment in the history between the Palestinians and the Israelis, a moment that is described in one word, Oslo. A natural question that you might ask, looking at Gaza today, is why Hamas and Islamic Jihad would attack Israel after Israel had fully withdrawn from the Gaza Strip in 2005. Surely military occupation could not be the reason. And the immediate causes stated by Hamas were clear enough. They set themselves up as the defenders of the Palestinians living in the West Bank and guardians of the Aqsa Mosque complex. The Sheikh Jarrah property disputes and Temple Mount riots were areas of serious offense. 
The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank was also set to have elections, and Hamas wanted to boost its popularity in the West Bank, hoping to oust the current ruling party, Fatah, and thus control Gaza as well as the West Bank. But beyond these political considerations, there are also deep ideological roots to Hamas's rejection of Israel's existence. In the 1988 Hamas Covenant, it states that Israel will exist and continue to exist until Islam obliterates it. It then continues later to say, there is no solution to the Palestinian question except through jihad. These founding declarations provide no room philosophically for negotiation. They are utterly incompatible with the two-state solution that many hoped would be the fruit of the consequential Oslo Accords of the 1990s. The Oslo Accords were born in a unique conversion of events that created an optimal opportunity for genuine dialogue between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the chief representative of the Palestinian cause. The first intifada, that is, uprising, by the Palestinian population of the West Bank and Gaza against Israel that began in 1987, presented a somewhat coordinated and united PLO, that is, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, to a sympathetic international press who saw the stone-throwing Palestinian protesters against the mighty Israeli military as a modern rendition of David and Goliath. However, the stone-throwing quickly devolved into Molotov cocktails, gasoline bombs, and stabbings. Though the Intifada was a catalytic event on the road to Oslo, the PLO made several tactical errors that significantly lessened their advantages before entering negotiations. The collapse of the Soviet Union left the PLO without superpower support. Believing that Iraq could help the Palestinian cause, Arafat sided with Saddam Hussein during the Gulf Crisis of 1990-1991 and thereby lost the financial support he might have otherwise received from the Gulf states. On Israel's side, the collapse of the Soviet Union, mass Jewish immigration to Israel, and the destruction of Iraq's army in 1991 greatly enhanced Israel's security. They had long-standing peace with both Jordan and Egypt, and the security zones that were born in the wake of the multi-front war of 1967 seemed less urgent or strategically needed. The Intifada convinced the Israeli left that wholly occupying the Palestinian territories was too costly for international isolation and domestic discord. Granting self-governance to the Palestinians, especially from a position of security and strength, would not seem like Israel was making concessions to desperation or fear of terrorist attacks. Israel was ready to talk. Moreover, more and more Palestinians and Israelis concluded that no military action would actually solve the conflict. The PLO had galvanized Palestinians and gained international recognition, but its armed struggle against Israel failed to liberate even an inch of Palestine. Even though Israel was considered to be the fourth strongest military power in the world, it could not destroy the PLO or subdue the civilian population of two million in the occupied territories. Both sides concluded that mutual recognition and dividing the land was the only viable option. Given this atmosphere of openness, U.S. President George H.W. Bush and Secretary of State James Baker III had an unprecedented opportunity to broker peace in the Middle East by arranging the Madrid Peace Conference in 1991 between Israel and the Arabs, including the Palestinians. 
And while it looked initially promising with a moderate Israeli coalition led by Yitzhak Rabin having an official policy of, quote, land for peace, end quote, negotiations eventually proved unfruitful, with the Palestinians considering the structure of the talks as inequitable and rejected the United States as honest brokers. So in the wake of the Madrid Peace Conference, Norway's foreign ministry arranged for a private secret channel in Oslo for two Israeli scholars, Yer Hirschfeld and Ron Pundak, and a PLO economist and aide to Chairman Arafat, Ahmed Suleiman Kourai, to meet. Negotiations began in the winter and spring of 1993. Israel and the PLO initialed two sets of documents in Oslo in late August, an exchange of letters of mutual recognition and the Declaration of Principles on Interim Self-Government Arrangements. On the 9th of September in 1993, Arafat signed the PLO letter recognizing Israel's right to exist, accepting Security Council Resolution 242, and renounced the use of terror and violence, pledging to remove clauses in the Palestinian government calling for the elimination of Israel. The next day, Rabin signed Israel's letter, recognizing the PLO as the representative of the Palestinian people and declaring Israel's intention to negotiate with the PLO. Implicit was Israel's recognition of Palestinian demands for self-determination and independence in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. The second document, the DOP, was signed at the White House on the 13th of September, 1993, and it outlined a five-year plan for Palestinian self-governance, starting with Israel's withdrawal of troops from the Gaza Strip and the West Bank town of Jericho, and the transfer of authority over economic development, education and culture, taxes, social welfare, public health, and tourism. Elections of an interim self-government council followed this agreement, and after the second year, negotiations would begin on Jerusalem, the refugees of 1948, Jewish settlements, and borders. Though this agreement was a historic step, it postponed many of the most controversial and consequential issues in order to pass initial rounds of approval. Islamist groups such as Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad rejected the accords entirely and conducted several deadly terrorist attacks that significantly disrupted the peace process. Negotiations over the implementation of the interim agreement dragged on until another was signed in Cairo in May 1994. Then Israel's troops did indeed withdraw and Palestinian police took over Jericho and the Gaza Strip. Though violent objections continued throughout the process, Oslo too was signed at the White House on the 28th of September in 1995, setting the stage for Israel's further withdrawal from the West Bank and for Palestinian elections. While Israel was giving up something very concrete, that is, land, for a future abstract hope of peace, there was widespread fear that the PLO was not negotiating in good faith towards coexistence, but merely using the accords as a means of gaining strength and launching a deadlier attack on Israel later. The PLO's original charter had called for the destruction and overthrow of Israel, but it had been amended in light of Oslo. However, the concept remains central to the covenants of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And fears of double-dealing seem to be justified when Arafat said, in response to Arab press questioning him on the concessions of Oslo, Remember the Treaty of Hudabiyah. Big agreement 
I'm not considering it more than the agreement which had been signed between our Prophet Muhammad and Quraysh. And you remember, Khalifa Umar had refused this agreement and considering it Sulhid Baniya. But Muhammad وسلم, had accepted it and we are accepting now this peace effort. While such a comment would seem to be obscure to a non-Muslim audience, the years well understood Arafat's reference. The Treaty of Hudabiyah was a treaty between the Prophet Muhammad and the Qurayshi tribe of Mecca. In AD 628, Muhammad traveled with 1,400 of his followers from Medina, ostensibly to make a pilgrimage to the Kaaba in the Mecca. It was general practice for pilgrims to be allowed entry into the city without question. Still, the size of the Muslim band, their evangelistic success in recruiting converts, and the looting of caravans entering and exiting the city caused the controlling tribe of Qureshi to view the travelers with suspicion and to refuse them entry into the city of Mecca. However, the Qureshi sent messengers to Muhammad at his camp outside of Mecca proper, and they negotiated a peace treaty, the Treaty of Hudabiyah, that granted 10 years of peace between the two parties and free access to Mecca for pilgrimage. However, Muhammad broke this treaty a mere two years later, attacking and conquering the city of Mecca. Arafat's reference to Hudabiyah was only too accurate. Negotiations between Israeli Prime Minister Barak and Arafat, mediated directly by Clinton at Camp David in July 2000, broke down. On the 29th of September 2000, the day after Ariel Sharon and an Israeli security force of 1,000 visited the El Haram al-Sharif, or the Temple Mount. The Second Intifada broke out. Arafat encouraged the violence in the hope of achieving diplomatic gains he could not get at the negotiating table. This belligerence broke one of the most fundamental agreements of Oslo, that the PLO would cease attacking Israel. Oslo had effectively unraveled, with some Israelis going so far as to call the Second Intifada the Oslo War. The Second Intifada lasted for four years and is generally believed to have ended at the Sharm el-Sheikh summit in February 2005, where the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas and the Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon again agreed that all Palestinian factions would stop all acts of violence against Israelis everywhere, and all Israeli military action would cease against all Palestinians. Sharon released 900 Palestinian prisoners withdrew from several West Bank towns and fully disengaged from Gaza. This complete disengagement from Gaza and the subsequent power vacuum caused the Oslo governmental structures of free and fair elections to be cast aside after Hamas won in the polls and then secured their position in a bloody struggle with the opposing Fatah party. Since then, Hamas has dominated the Gaza Strip causing significant steps backwards for both Palestinian citizens of Gaza, whose millions of dollars in international aid is often redirected into the pockets of the powerful, and towards building a more and more sophisticated rocket arsenal that Hamas uses to launch attacks at Israel. At least four times Hamas has attacked since the withdrawal of Israel in 2005. This poor outcome has caused Israel to view the land for peace principle of the 1990s 
as a completely ineffective tool for lasting peace. What about Gaza? Yes, they were. Yes, they were. No, wait a minute. Yes, they were. And Hamas is really smart. When they decide to rocket Israel, they insinuate themselves in the hospitals, in the schools, in the highly populous areas, and they are smart. So they try. So they wait, wait, wait. They so they try to put the Israelis in a position of either not defending themselves or killing innocents. They're good at it. They're smart. They've been doing this a long time. Look, I killed myself to give the Palestinians a state. I had a deal they turned down. They would have given them all of Gaza. Wait, wait. All of Gaza, between 96 and 97% of the West Bank, compensating land in Israel. You name it. Then, when Mr. Fayyad was the prime minister of the Palestinians on the West Bank, we had all the Muslim countries willing to normalize relations with Israel. In light of the agreements of Oslo and their subsequent breakdown, it might seem strange that the Oslo Accords still govern a great deal of what is talked about when it comes to international law and the responsibilities and relationships of Israel and the Palestinian territories. Familiarity with the contents of the Oslo Accords is vital today in light of the often-evoked accusation of Israel breaking international law. A prime example of this is when the coronavirus was raging throughout Gaza and the West Bank, and Israel became the object of widespread disgust across the globe for not providing Gazans or West Bank citizens with vaccines. The Geneva Conventions were often cited, stating that it's the occupying power's responsibility to provide for the medical needs of the occupied population. However, the Oslo Accords state that in the specific relationship of Israel and the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Authority has the right to have complete control over the healthcare system as part of their self-determination. Israel did later make vac- vaccines available to Palestinians, contrary to the binding stipulations of Oslo, but it was too late to satisfy their critics. This instance is an excellent example of Israel's complicated relationship with international law. On the one hand, it was a United Nations resolution that recognized the legitimacy of the Jewish state of Israel in 1948. However, since that time, the UN has had a distinctly adversarial attitude to all things Israel. The Anti-Defamation League, a long-standing and respected legal organization that fights anti-Semitism, provides a helpful framework for distinguishing legitimate criticism of Israel from anti-Semitism cloaked as political activism. The test involves three Ds, demonization, double standards, and delegitimization. If any accusation towards Israel or the Jewish people has these elements within it, it can be considered anti-Semitic. And in many of its resolutions condemning Israel, the UN demonstrates egregious double standards, a fact which is not lost on most Israelis. This unbalanced focus puts Israel between a rock and a hard place, constantly trying to appease a system that fundamentally is anti-Semitic, as well as trying to keep its own security needs in view. This tightrope is tough to navigate in the PR war that is taking place in the press simultaneous to the actual war being raged on the ground. 
How can Israel defend their actions with legal arguments from treaties such as Oslo when the headlines scream war crimes? And that brings us to our next section. I don't think it means what you think it means. When it comes to conflict in the Middle East, it's impossible to exaggerate the influence of the global press. No one is more aware of this power than the Palestinians. Indeed, in light of the ceasefire that ended the latest round of conflict between Israel and Hamas, Hamas declared that they were the victorious party, and Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Lebanese Hezbollah, the master mediator manipulator, agreed. In a lengthy speech entitled Victory Workshop, Nasrallah declared that Hamas had achieved the victory of the 2021 Gaza War thanks to the media. The narrative, as narrated by Hamas, was often unquestioned, and the new social media platforms allowed the propaganda to spread to even less critically thoughtful audiences virally. Nasrallah explained that media and publicity are war tools. Just as there is research and development for military systems, one must also invest in media and publicity. Nasrallah addressed all the supporters of the Palestinian resistance and instructed them in detail on how they must act to achieve the victory narrative. Nasrallah then give a, gives a clear list of do's and don'ts and emphasizes that every supporter of the axis of resistance is a tool in the system built to strengthen the narrative. Nasrallah is well aware that the pressure exerted on Israel through international public opinion is much stronger than any weapon that the axis of resistance has. Despite the Axis's tremendous advantage over Israel in this field, he is now calling for serious staff work to upgrade this tool against Israel for future campaigns. This highly strategic use of social media has been so effective in part because of the use of words that carry much emotional weight, claiming volumes in just a few syllables. To question terms such as colonialism, apartheid, and war crimes would seem to align the reader with some of the worst sins of the last few centuries, Never mind that such words in the hands of propagandists have been stretched well beyond their actual meaning to slanderous levels. The cumulative effect of this avalanche of accusation has been to create a grossly simplified story, a modern morality play in which the Jews of Israel display more than any other nation's moral failure and malice. This deeply anti-Semitic stance, unfortunately, does not just negatively affect Israel's ability to receive fair and truthful coverage in her actions, but also impacts the broader Jewish community, irrespective of their stance on Israel's national policies. The Anti-Defamation League reported that anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. more than doubled during the May 2021 military conflict between Israel and Hamas and its immediate aftermath, compared to that same period in 2020. Most of the rage was driven by the direct association in the mind of the attackers with all Jewish people and the state of Israel. But is it fair to say that the disgust of those vandalizing, harassing, and assaulting their Jewish neighbors was purely politically driven, or was something more ideologically sinister at the root of it? Perhaps the easiest way to judge is from the protests held across the globe during the May 2021 conflict. One widespread and popular chant was Chayba Chayba Yayahud Jesh Muhammad Sayahud, which means Jews remember Chaybar, the army of Muhammad is waiting. What is this referencing? 
Khaibar refers to the Muslim massacre of Jews in the town of that name in northwestern Arabia in AD 628. The Muslim conquerors charged surviving Jews a 50% tax on their crops, and in 637, after Muhammad's death, the Caliph Omar expelled the remaining Jews from Khaibar. This battle chant has been used over the centuries when attacking Jews, or more recently, Israelis. Of course, the original circumstances well preceded the state of Israel and the provocation of a Jewish state occupying Muslim populations. Another common phrase chanted at protests is, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. While freedom always has a popular positive ring to it, the insidious implication of this chant is that the state of Israel, with its border on the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, must cease to exist for Palestine to be free. This one state suggestion becoming increasingly popular would be disastrous for Israel, which would become a Jewish minority subject to a Muslim majority whose taunts of Khaibar would most likely become a reality. This widespread rejection of the two-state solution is another symptom of Oslo's diminishing influence. Although the two-state solution seemed to be the only way forward without the destruction of the Jewish state of Israel or the unending military occupation of the Palestinian territories, the mindset of many spokespeople of the Palestinian cause has devolved to, we don't negotiate with colonialist apartheid criminals. And thus, the uneasy impasse of the last two decades has become punctuated with frequent bursts of violence. So we can see that the roots of rage have burrowed so profoundly that it is impossible to pull them out with diplomatic negotiation. Rather than the flash of positive momentum that seemed to spark in the imperfect and short-lived Oslo Accords, much of the last two decades have devolved into further estrangement and completely incompatible goals. Israel sees that it is vital to maintain a majority Jewish nation, and the Palestinians are less willing to pursue Oslo's two-state pipe dream. All this is vastly complicated by the double standards of the United Nations and International Criminal Court when it comes to all things Israel and the skillful manipulation of the press to further the false and simplistic narrative that Israel is a fundamentally evil actor. In these conditions, the best that can be hoped for is a status quo. But as the Gaza War of 2021 demonstrates, this impasse will not last forever. Keep an eye out for the final installment of Roots of Rage, where we will cover the biblical history surrounding anti-Semitism and the phenomenon of modern anti-Zionism. This has been Roots of Rage Part 2, Oslo, International Law, Anti-Semitism, and A War of Words. If you enjoyed listening, please feel free to read or listen to other articles at oleaster.org. Receive new content in your inbox by subscribing to our Substack or follow at Oleaster Branch on X or Instagram. Any and all feedback to this and other articles is welcome. If you have a question, comment, or correction, please feel free to email contact at oleaster.org. The music in this episode is Zion Train by Alexandra Simeonov. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Maranatha.